It is Leap Day as we record this, and welcome to this edition of the Leapy Mosin at Large podcast, episode number 24. On the show today, we're going to be looking at people's misconceptions about blindness. Goodness knows there are a lot of them. Plenty of technology news, including iOS 13.4 and more. To be in touch with the show, you can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. You can attach an audio clip to that email, or you can just write an email down. If you prefer, you can let your voice be heard on our listener line, and that number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. I remind you that this is a long podcast, but... We do index our podcasts now with chapter marks. So if you have a podcast player that supports them, it's really easy to jump forward and back between segments of the podcast. It is leap year at the time that we are putting this show together. And there are all sorts of traditions around leap years that are probably a little bit outdated. For example, Somebody's decided, I guess just because of the way society has evolved over time or not evolved over time, more to the point, that a woman can only propose to a man on leap year's day. So supposedly the tradition is if you want to marry someone and you're a woman, you can only ask them on the 29th of February. So that is a very strange thing, and hopefully that doesn't apply like it used to. But that's an intriguing one. I'd be very interested to hear from anybody who has a birthday on the 29th of February and how that is for you. I've always thought as a child, probably some of the most difficult things are having a birthday on Christmas Day because you feel like everybody else gets two really big, exciting days of presents and attention and you get one unless the parentals make some sort of special effort around this. And the other one is having your birthday on the 29th of February. So you only get to celebrate your real birthday once every four years. I mean, what sort of quirky fluke of nature is this? That happenstance means that you are born on the 29th of February. So I'd love to know. If you are born on the 29th of February, how that works out. Did you feel as a child, assuming you're not one now, that you missed out in some way? How was it dealt with? I should also say that here in New Zealand, of course, it's the 1st of March already, and that's when we consider autumn to begin, and we are feeling quite autumnal. Autumnal! (laughs) He says, patting is autumnal. And I remembered when waking up, because of my really annoying sometimes ability to chronicle dates, that it was 30 years ago today that I did my first full-time breakfast show gig on a commercial radio station in Auckland. I got offered that breakfast show gig in very unusual circumstances the night before (laughs) and uh, started immediately, immediately on the radio. So that was on the 1st of March, 1990, my first full-time breakfast gig. And I was reflecting on just how the medium has changed in some ways, but remains the same in others. It's changed in terms of the technicals, I would never have thought that I could build a studio like this and talk to a global audience via a live stream that people could listen to on all sorts of mobile devices or via this podcast thing that, of course, we never heard of, never imagined, and and people would be able to just listen on demand. 
So we've come a long way. And of course, in 1990, the studio that I worked in had a lot of cart machines. For those who aren't in the industry, that was these sorts of little tape loops on these big fat cassette type things, specially designed for radio. And because they were on a loop, you'd put it in the slot, push the button and boom, you know, you'd get your little jingle or music was often recorded on cart as well. Where it fell down badly was if the radio station didn't have a sufficient number of cart machines. And at breakfast, of course, you have lots of carts, little carts for the traffic intros and carts for all sorts of other things. If you didn't let the cart requeue because you needed the machine again and you didn't let it go around on its loop, then the next time you or someone else used that cart, it wouldn't be ready. And you'd do your big build-up and you'd push the button, clunk, and nothing would happen. That's the cart machines. We had CDs. We had those, uh, we had two or three of those six disc CD changes and a catalog system. So you would be told to play a particular song and they had all these little six disc cartridges in this radio station I worked at and they would be labeled A through, I don't know, J or whatever. And then the disc number and the track number. And uh, what some broadcasters used to do, which was really frustrating, would be to take the disc out for whatever reason, and then they'd put it in the wrong slot of the of the cart of the cartridge, the CD cartridge. So, I remember working on a radio station that was kind of playing music from the fifties and sixties, and sort of softer songs from the seventies. And it was one of those radio stations where you would have to lean into the mic and go, "More unforgettable music." Yeah. Timeless hits on Today 92 FM and all that sort of nonsense. And uh, anyway, and there was, a, I think it was a Pat Boone track or something. And the, the little catalog thing said A27 or something, you know, like that. So I would, you know, get this. I'd labeled all the cartridges. So I'd get cartridge A and that was labeled. And then I'd put it in the machine and I pressed the track disc two number seven and i'd say you know more pat boone on your timeless and i push the button and bruce springsteen's born to run came belting out oh no and so i stopped it and i thought i must have punched in the wrong number sorry wrong number so i punched the a27 thing in again and, and and it came on again so I had nothing else queued up. I think I fumbled around trying to find something and finally got something on the air. And of course, the operations manager was listening, wasn't he? And the hotline rang. Is everything okay in there? I sometimes wonder whether somebody did that deliberate. Deliberate. Anyway, radio's changed a lot in the execution, but not on the fundamental relationship that we have with our audience. So I thank you for that. Thank you for the fact that uh, we all, I was looking at the podcast stats and I see, you know, we've got listeners in New Zealand and Australia and the United States and the UK and Canada and uh, quite a few countries in Europe. But we also have listeners in places I wasn't expecting, like Iran and um, uh, China and Saudi Arabia and various other places. So it is amazing. It is amazing where the listeners come from for this. So thank you for that. It's been an amazing journey. And of course, although that was my first full-time breakfast gig, I do go back all the way to when I was four when I first went on the radio. So I will be coming up in a few years to my 50th anniversary on the radio, which is ridiculous. Ridiculous. Jane Jordan says, I want to learn coding 
and I need to figure out where to start because coding isn't just one program, it seems. Well, you probably want to pick a language, Jane. And since I think you're pretty embedded in the Apple ecosystem, if I remember correctly, then Swift might be the way to go for that. So if anyone has learned to program, I I definitely think, and I found this with JAWS scripting and that kind of malarkey, the trick to learning a programming language or, or any kind of coding is to have an ambition to do something specific, something you'd like to achieve, because that really focuses the mind. And then the concepts mean something. So others might like to comment. If you've learned to code over the years, what did you do? What motivated you? And what language would you recommend? I don't know much about Swift, actually. But certainly if you're coming into coding from scratch, you might like to look at Apple Shortcuts because that does introduce the concepts of if-then type statements, and it would be a fairly easy way to just dip your toe in the water and find out if you enjoy the logical process of coding. Now, it is leap year, and it is leap day. Sarah Hillis has sent in an article, a Wikipedia article, and I had a quick look at this. There are all sorts of alternative systems that I do see proposed from time to time. And this is one particular system that has obviously caught Sarah's attention, where you would abandon the leap day every four years. And instead, I think every six years, if I remember the details correctly, and if, if, I, if I haven't, I'll be castigated quite rightly so, you get an extra week. The upshot of that is that the calendar day would be the same day every year. Genius, eh? DJ Z-Man, I'm tuned in here in Illinois. And speaking of leap day, there are probably a lot of four-year-olds who qualify to get their driver's license in the U.S. today. (laughs) I suppose that's right in a technical sense. Hey, Jonathan, how are you? My name is Anil. Hi, Anil. Before I ask you a quick question, I wanted to tell you that I am using noise-canceling microphone, but it is also cancelling my voice. I don't know why. Well, I mean, I think that a lot of listeners would like me to get a microphone like that so that all the noise I make would just be cancelled out. Marvellous idea, Adele. Still, it shouldn't be cancelling you, should it? It should not be cancelling you. Anyway, have you ever faced this phenomena in society where a person who had experience with a blind person before, when he meets you, he treats you as every blind person is same and he goes on that ideology and offers you advices that may or may not relevant to you. Have you ever faced this kind of situation? If not you, any of the Mosinet Lodge podcast listeners face these kind of situations in their life. I am very interested to know. Oh man, yes, Anil, yes. I have seen this many, many times where people make assumptions. Maybe they've met one blind person before, or maybe the only blind person that they have heard of is 
a musician like Stevie Wonder or something like that. So they decide that all blind people must have perfect pitch. They must have a great sense of um, hearing because your senses are more acute, <laughs> notwithstanding the fact that quite a few congenital blind conditions come with a bonus hearing impairment absolutely free. Don't even get the steak knives. So, yes, people do make assumptions, and I suppose that's just the nature of isms, isn't it? You know, racism, sexism, ableism, people do make these assumptions. So, yes, it's uh, it's a very common thing, and other people might like to comment on preconceptions that they have had to deal with. This is a heartwarming story I came across, and I wanted to share it with you because it's it's a pretty cool tech story as well. It says here, A family from Montana has both Apple and Disney to thank for ensuring their recent vacation ended magically after all. In early October, parents Lisa and Jacob Troyer took their daughter Sophie on a week-long trip to Disney World to fulfill a little girl's dream. While there, they took in the Florida sun, went on rides, met Halloween-themed Disney characters, because, of course, this was October, and had all the fun that one could possibly imagine. One not-so-fun moment came on the final evening of the trip after attending Mickey Mouse's not-so-scary Halloween party at Magic Kingdom and waiting for a ferry boat to depart the park Lisa's brand-new iPhone 11 fell out of her bag and landed right into the Seven Seas Lagoon, which is a small body of water in front of Magic Kingdom where Disney operates water-based transportation. Ouchie! With the iPhone sinking to the bottom of the sea, and it being late at night, Lisa believed that the chances of getting the device back would be slim. I was upset to have lost my phone and the pictures I had taken that evening of Disney's Halloween party, which had been the main event of our trip, said Lisa. Our six-year-old daughter was particularly devastated as pictures of her and Jack Skellington would never materialise. Although you'd think they'd be backed up to iCloud, though, wouldn't you? Anyway, I don't want to spoil a good story. Instead, they sat at the bottom of a lagoon. The next day, Lisa provided her contact information to a Disney World employee who informed her that the resort had a team of scuba divers that retrieved lost goods every so often. Lisa's hopes remained low, and upon returning to Montana, she purchased a new iPhone and her family moved on with life as usual. Almost two months later, Lisa received some missed calls from the Orlando area. Figuring it was a telemarketer, she ignored them. Then came a call from her father-in-law. So she does pick up the calls from her father-in-law. Well, that's a good sign. Anyway, he let her know that Disney had found her iPhone. Lisa says the Disney employee mailed the phone to her, and despite being submerged for quite some time, she found the device to be completely functional. Wow! I was able, she said, to retrieve all of the pictures from our Disney Halloween night, and besides some sand in my case and a little algae on the cover, the phone seems no worse for the wear, she said. 
noting that the device was only protected by a thin silicon case. Impressed that the iPhone 11's water resistance really lived up to all the hype, Lisa wrote about her experience in an email to Apple CEO Tim Cook, who thanked her for sharing the story. Her husband, Jacob, then relayed the story to Mac Rumors. Lisa says her husband has always been a very devoted Apple product user, revealing that one of the very first gifts he bought for her was the original iPad. She had purchased an iPhone 11 just a few days before traveling to Disney World, and thanks to its water resistance, her family now has photos that will last a lifetime. Now that is a great story, isn't it? Have you ever had anything like that? I I must say I am very reluctant to get my technology wet even in this day and age i don't even shower with my apple watch much as i'd like to try it i'm too chicken to and i know that people shower with their apple watch all the time i get a bit worried about putting soap in the apple watch which they don't recommend but i know i just can't bring myself to do it i will one day probably just when i'm feeling brave but i haven't showered with my apple watch i'd be interested if you do if you have an apple watch whether you keep it on in the shower but I also think it's a good chance to charge it as well because I leave mine on at night so that I can get tapped on the wrist when the alarm goes off and also check the time at night with the taptic time but I did accidentally drop an iPhone I don't know must have been four or something like that in the toilet don't even ask how that happened i i don't think no no it was the bath i think actually i I was bending over to check the water that's what it was and then uh, the phone was in my pocket and it fell in the bath as i was checking the water level and i i quickly got it out and looked on the web what i was supposed to do and i i think i sent a blow dryer thing through the lightning port and then didn't turn it on again and put it in rice or something. And it actually did turn out okay. It was a very quick trip in the bath. Some people aren't quite so lucky. I was reading on Reddit earlier today before coming down to the studio to do the show that the Apple gods were kind of having fun with this guy because he fell down the stairs, broke his Apple watch, gave himself a heck of a fright in the process And so he's got this shattered Apple Watch, but the screen's working a little bit. And so he looks at the screen and the little activity app has popped up and it said, great start to your activity. You're really crushing it. (laughs) Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. Hi, Jonathan, it's Grace here. Um, I've got a bit of a cold and I've had a, I've had this chest infection, but apart from that, I'm okay. But I'll tell you what I want to ask you. It's something about the Amazon Echo. One night, I asked her to tell me a joke, and she did. And the next thing that I uh, that I recognised was that she had enabled a skill called. Alexa's jokes and I never asked her to do this and my friend uh, he he tried to uh, disable it for me because I didn't want it Um, he's gone into the skills you know my skills that I have and he says it's not there 
that when I ask Graham as an echo to check what skills I've got, she'll say, here is one more enabled skill, and she'll say the name of the skill, and it's, you know, I didn't even ask for it to be there. So I just wondered if you could give me any advice on that. I guess my advice on this one would be not to worry about it. I've never really seen any particular advantage in disabling a skill, other than perhaps that it might narrow the mistakes that the soup drinker might make in terms of recognizing a command you are trying to give it. But it's not like the skills take up any storage on your device or that there's a limit. I don't believe there is. To the best of my knowledge, there isn't a limit to the number of skills you can have enabled. So while it might be a bit annoying, it's probably not important. You don't really lose anything by just keeping it enabled and You might get a funny joke out of it. Alan Young has been in touch via the email. Hi, Alan. He said that he enjoyed episode 17 of the Mosin at Large podcast where we were talking about the Backpack Studio app. And he was mentioning that he was uh, impressed with the Samsung Q2U mic. He has gone out and bought a Samsung C03U microphone, which I think he's saying is the same kind of mic. And... He says he likes it for broadcasting better than his Blue Yeti. And I can understand that. The Samson mics are great. That Q2U is certainly a very directional mic. And the reason for that is that it is a dynamic mic. It isn't a condenser mic. And while the Yeti has a range of patterns and it's a lovely mic, you do have to be careful with room ambience and what pattern you use or you'll get quite a lot of room ambience with the Blue Yeti. With a dynamic mic like the Samsung Q2U or perhaps the one you have, Alan, you won't get that. You've got to basically be right in front of the mic. And so there are advantages of different sorts of microphones for different situations. For example, I used to use a condenser mic in the studio and then we had some furniture changes and it really became noticeable that there was a little, just a little bit of bounce in the room because there were there were more hard walls around the place for sound to bounce off. And then uh, Glenn Gordon, Glenn Gordon, he said, you should really do something about this. And uh, he recommended the Heil PR40. And we have a couple of Heil PR40 microphones in the studio now. And they're absolutely gorgeous instruments. They're not cheap. But when you kind of learn how to treat the mic, it's very susceptible to proximity effects. So you've got to be a bit careful with the Heil PR40. But it's a great mic. And so for, for certain less professional environments where you don't have acoustic foam everywhere all over the walls and absolutely dead acoustics. Uh, some dynamic mics can be a very, very nice option and they're pretty cost-effective. Mosin at Large Podcast. Andy says, I don't have an Apple Watch, but if I did, I don't have an Apple Watch, but boy, if I did. I'm with you, he says. I wouldn't shower with it, etc." I'm so used to being cautious, etc., with technology. Yeah, well, when you've spent a few bucks on it, I understand why. Kathy Blackburn, she says, I don't allow my Apple Watch in the shower either. I'd be really interested to know whether anybody does. I mean, you, you as long as you don't get soap in it, it should actually be fine. You can swim with the Apple Watch, and I know we do have people who swim with the Apple Watch and talk about how fun it is when you push the little ejector button and all the water comes out the speaker. I haven't swam with my Apple Watch either. Hi, Jonathan, and everyone listening to the Mosin at Large podcast. This is Herbie Allen, second time caller. 
Welcome, Rudy. I thought I'd answer a couple of questions that were asked last week about recording apps and voicemail interceptors. First of all, recording apps. For long-term use, there's a couple of different ones I like to use. One is called Recorder HQ Pro. It is about $5 US, maybe a little bit more, I think perhaps like a penny less. It is a very accessible app that can record in any file format you pretty much want. WAV, MP3, M4A, AFE, CAF. I think there's like one or two others. And it definitely works with stereo mics as well as the iPhone internal one. Two things I really like about it is, one, if you end up doing something else on your phone, other than getting a phone call or whatever, but um, let's say if you, like, were recording using headphones and, like, you launched a YouTube video, it would still keep the recording going. It wouldn't pause it. And then when it does pause the recording for whatever reason, it will... Like, if you get a phone call, then it will either, depending on your settings, save it automatically or bring up the save window. And there's just a lot of things you can do. You can save to your phone. You can have it save automatically to iCloud. And, of course, you can share it with any other service, Dropbox, Facebook, YouTube, the whole nine yards. And that is Recorder HQ Pro. And another one that I like to use, it's a bit more geeky, and I actually use it not what it was designed for by the creators, but it's called Dolby On. And it's an app that basically adds a surround sound effect to your voice. What I do, though, is I like it because I have these uh, Sennheiser headphones that I feel like it really brings out the stereo quality in them and really enhances surround more than a standard stereo recording, but uh, they designed it more for people with mono mics. It's a good app. It doesn't do as well for like really, really long recordings that are like over an hour and a half, at least that's been my experience, but there's a lot of interesting things you can do with that app from to just customizing the way it sounds. And it's a free app too. So, And by customizing sounds, I mean you can basically change the bass level, treble, you can do noise reduction, and a few other things too with equalization and whatnot. So it's a pretty, like I said, it's a geeky app. It basically adds a surround sound effect to your voice and... I like it for that. Um, you're limited in your file formats with that one. You've basically got lossless or high-quality M4A. And that one also does do video, and it can even do live streaming. It's a pretty cool app, and that is called Dolby On. And then you uh, also briefly mentioned RecUp. That used to be Dropvox. An app that uh, basically would you record and it automatically uploads to a preset Dropbox folder that you determined. And, you know, they changed the name of that several years ago to RecUp. So that's what that app is. And then finally, a question was asked about voicemail interceptors. And one that I use in the U.S., I don't know if it's available internationally or not. It's called Umail. And they do some spam filtering as well as being a voicemail service and transcribing. They have a free version and a paid version. And like I said, it works in the U.S. I don't know if it uh, is abroad or not, but I tried it out when I was getting attacked by spammers. And it's not as restrictive as you know the iPhone feature 
and uh, but it will help try to trap a lot of like spam callers. It's it does a so-so job. Um, I've only just had it for like less than a month. Excellent. Thank you. Hope I will check out that first app you mentioned. That sounds pretty cool. So thank you for such a thorough review there and a description of what it does. Carolyn Peters in Auckland and says, Hi, Jonathan. Last weekend, we went to see the Roger Hall play Winding Up. There is a very funny scene in it featuring an Apple Watch, a fall and sick. Oh, my word. The female character purchased the watch for her elderly husband, who was always having falls. It was brilliant script writing. Very good. Well, that sounds good. I, I, I'm a great admirer of Roger Hall's stuff. And the Apple Watch fall detection is a real winner for older people, especially the fact that after a period of you not responding after a fall, it will automatically place a call to emergency services. So that's a fantastic feature of the Apple Watch for sure. DJ Z-Man says two of the most common misconceptions about blindness I hear. You make up for it by your better hearing. What? And you don't look like a blind person. When asked what a blind person is supposed to look like, they don't seem to have an answer. I got this on the radio, actually. When I was doing full-time commercial radio, most of the time it wasn't relevant to mention that I was a blind person. But I wouldn't shy away from it. And I remember something came up. I don't know. It might have had to do with Braille or something. And I mentioned it in this case. And the switchboard lit up with people saying, gosh, you don't sound like a blind person. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. Dean Calder has emailed in from Australia on the subject of bullying. And I have to say, I got a lot of very nice emails and I won't read them all out because some of them are just nice uh, and, and I don't want to be too self-indulgent, but I will read those that have perhaps some anecdotes that you might relate to. So Dean says, I really enjoy listening to the Mosin Explosion and the Mosin at Large podcast. I'm writing to express an opinion on bullying, in particular as it stands in the blind community and how I have seen other people, the victims of bullying amongst our community. Like many of us, I have experienced long-term unemployment. I was made redundant in 2009, and then for nearly six years, I was out of work. My persistence and positivity paid off, and I was successful in securing a job with a water company in customer support, a job that I still hold to this day. I am also on the diversity panel at work, and I like to think I've developed a good profile around the company. When I alerted people via my Facebook page that I was successful at seeking employment, a lot of people were really supportive. Some months later, I ran into someone at Swish, that's vision-impaired table tennis, we've talked about Swish on the show before, who I hadn't seen for some years. We got talking and they asked me, what are you up to now? I told them that I was made redundant from my last job and that I had found a new job after years of persistence and hard work on my part. They then went on to ask if I still lived at home. I replied that I did. And they retaliated that you don't need to work, you still live at home. I was gobsmacked by the statement and how rude they were. This person and I hadn't particularly been the best of friends, 
but it made me dislike them even more than I already did. I also see other people being bullied, particularly if they have other disabilities with their blindness, and I really dislike the judgmental nature of the vision-impaired community. Emma Benison, who is the CEO of Blind Citizens Australia, called people out and said that we are the most judgmental community that I have ever come across. I thought that was brave, someone in her position making her thoughts known. I also think that the blind community have an attitude that the world owes them a living. If you are one of the few who are employed, you are people's best friend. People have often said to me, you're working, you could get me a job, couldn't you? I don't believe that I owe them absolutely anything at all. I worked hard and got lucky. These people should too. Thank you very much, Dean, and uh, congratulations on conquering that unemployment nightmare. It is a very tough business for blind people when we are so often limited by other people's perceptions of our ability rather than by blindness itself. And it can be very demoralizing and frustrating. And the fact that you stuck with it for as long as you did is a great credit to you because it's so easy to become demoralized and just give up. The one thing that I would say that I have really internalized over the years about this is that it is true when you're in a small community, and I don't think that we as a blind community are unique in this, but I think we have a, an expression in New Zealand that I think is a uniquely New Zealand expression, and we call it the tall poppy syndrome. And what it means is that if you are successful, you are immediately decried for being successful. This is actually one thing that I've really noticed is different, at least about the blind community in Australia. When I have been to Blind Citizens Australia conventions, and I've loved them, I have noticed how there is respect for the wisdom and the contribution of blind people who have perhaps done their time in the trenches of advocacy. Maybe they've retired, maybe they're doing more senior or just different work. But there is that respect and inclusion and almost reverence for older blind people. And I think that's very healthy and respectful. So I do admire that about the Australian blind community very much. But in general, one thing I have noticed is that we do, as a community, tend to be jealous or envious of people who have had some success rather than perhaps thinking, I wonder what I can learn from their experience. Unless you're applying for the same job or something like that, or you're, you're running for the same elected position, someone else's gain does not necessarily mean that you can't gain. In fact, it could well be the opposite. The more blind people who are out there just holding down jobs, doing everyday things, the more visible we are. The more visible we are, hopefully the less stigma there will be about blindness and the easier it will be for everyone. So when I see a blind person succeeding in any endeavor, no matter what that endeavor is, I celebrate it. I welcome it. I say, good on them. Hello, Jonathan. It's Ian Lackey on the message. Hello, Ian. Uh, I just thought I would talk to you rather than send you an email um a couple of things first you were talking i can't remember whether it was last week or the week before about organizations and how they want to use the word vision or something to do with sight and a title uh, one of the things that strikes me is how very much afraid even organizations are supposedly of the blind are afraid to use the word blind I had a call uh, last week from 
somebody RNIB, which, as you know, is the Royal National Institute of Blind People. And she said, oh, I'm just checking up on your details to see if I've got them right. Uh, and she asked things like my name and address and date of birth. And then she said, how would you describe your sight? And I said, blind. And she said, oh, severely sight impaired. I said, no, blind. And she said, oh, we don't have that category. And I thought that was extraordinary that the Royal Ashton's Institute of Blind People can't allow a blind person to call themselves blind. It's quite extraordinary. Um, and the other thing I was going to mention was all this talk about Tom Dooley caused me to have a browse around in Apple Music and see what I could find. And I think if you listen to the track, versions of the track by people like Doc Watson, an American uh, old-time country And singer, he was blind too. Who was also blind. Oh, oh, um, oh, you said that. Okay. If you listen to the Doc Watson version of the song, you'll find that it corresponds more to the story that you got from, I think it was Wikipedia. Uh, it's much more earthy than the Kingston Trio. And to my mind, to be honest, much better. Look, I just so agree with you, Ian. And it's good to hear your voice. And whenever somebody says to me, are you, insert euphemism here, are you visually impaired? Are you vision impaired? Are you sight impaired? Are you visually challenged? Are you sightless? Are you non, non-seeing? I'm blind. This is a, for goodness sake, I'm blind. There was a very interesting discussion on Reddit actually the other day about whether the term visually impaired was appropriate or not. And apparently this is a hot topic in Australia, which I do find quite interesting, given that they have an organisation there called Vision Australia, and that doesn't seem to be a hot topic. But apparently Australians strongly object to the term visually impaired, and I believe Blind Citizens Australia have passed a resolution on the subject because they say that visually impaired implies that you you don't look good. You know, you, you, you aesthetically you don't, you're aesthetically impaired. I have some sympathy with that. Um, when I worked at IRA, we had a style guide, and what we settled on was blind and low vision, and I think that's fair enough. Some people won't self-identify as blind, and I think we should respect that right. But if you're going to have a term that indicates that you have a little bit of usable vision, I think low vision is probably it. Blind and low vision seems the sweet spot. But all these euphemisms around actual blindness, it's so perplexing. and I. I, in my experience, it generally comes not from blind people. We have a couple of emails to go through about one password, which seems to have captured the imagination. The first is from Francisco. He says, hello, Jonathan. I have always thought of giving one password a try. I understand the logic behind using a password manager. However, I don't feel ready to take the plunge. When someone suggests that I give it a try, I always ask them the same question. What if there is a one-password data breach? That would put me in serious trouble. How would you work around a situation like that? It's a fair question on the surface, Francisco, and you're absolutely right to be cautious about these things. But there is a very simple and pretty powerful answer to this. Last week on the show, we talked about two-factor authentication, and that is to say that you really need 
to log in safely somewhere, two things, something that you know, a password, or something that someone knows, and something that you have on your person. Now, in the case of 1Password, you can certainly log in to your 1Password account with your password, which hopefully is unique and quite complex and something that only you would figure out. But you're absolutely right to ask the question, okay, but what happens if in the worst case scenario, somebody does log in to your 1Password? At that point, they're still not going to be able to get at your data because what happens then is that the first time you set up 1Password, when you've got a brand new clean account and you've logged in for the first time, you are given a key. It's a very long key. I forget, it might be 40 characters long, but I might have that wrong. It's an encryption key. 1Password can't get this encryption key back for you. They make it very clear. They don't store it. They can't help you if you lose it. You put the encryption key in. Once you do that on your first device, then you are able to authorize subsequent devices by going in and getting your key from your device and putting it into another one. So again, it is important that you keep your devices secure. And that's very easily done on devices like iOS and I presume Android because you can protect with Touch ID, Face ID, the actual password itself, etc. And they do have by default quite strict timeout provisions on all of that. So you have to have the encryption key. And if you lose it, and they do encourage you to keep a backup kit somewhere safe, because if you do lose it, one password peeps can't help you get it back. So they also tell me in an article that I read that one password has not ever been hacked at this time. They take their security very seriously. However, even if that changes one day and somebody just gets the passwords for some weird reason, and uh, my understanding is that they're using some pretty clever W3C state-of-the-art technology to avoid that. But if it did happen, then you're still you not going to get somebody accessing your private data because of the encryption key. So it's a very robust system, and I would highly encourage you to give it a try. It's uh, 1Password is just great. And I'll tell you what, it sure is better than resorting to using the same password over and over again because it's convenient. Uh, it may well be convenient, but it's hella insecure. While we are on the subject of 1Password, here's Mike Fulton. He says, Hi, Jonathan. I want to first start by saying that I regularly listen to the Mosin at Large podcast and greatly enjoy it. Keep up the great work. That's very kind of you. Thank you, Mike. I heard you talk quite a bit about 1Password and wanted to make the switch from using Chrome's built-in password manager. However, I am encountering a few issues and wondering if you have found any workarounds. I first tried installing the 1Password Chrome extension and the Windows app. Yep, that's the way to go. Pressing Control backslash works when there is only one login saved for a particular website, but if there are multiple logins, I'm placed in a search box. The only thing I can do is to start typing the name of the website, at which point I can access a list of the logins for that site. However, JAWS only reads the name of the website as I arrow through the list and does not give me an indication of what the username is. 
so I can differentiate between the multiple logins that are presented. That's a security feature, Mike, because no username, no password, that's all good. There's a very easy workaround to this, and there are two ways you can do it. If you know you are going to have to have multiple logins to the one website, you can think ahead of time. When you log in the first time, one password will pop up and say, oh, you know, this is a new website. Do you want me to save the username and password you just typed in for this? When you choose to save the password, there's an edit field that pops up and it invites you to give it a title. Now, this is the cool trick. I, for example, host two podcasts with the very excellent podcast hosting service called Libsyn. One is the Mosin at Large podcast, and the other is the podcast that I do for the organization I work for. And I have two logins. And so when I created the accounts, I called one Libsyn Mosin at Large and the other Libsyn Mahi, which is the name of the podcast for WorkBridge. So when I go to the Libsyn login page and I press my control backslash, I then press tab. You don't have to search in the edit box. You can just press tab and get to a list of logins that it believes are compatible. And in my case on Libsyn, I have two and they're clearly labeled. One is called Libsyn Mosin at large and the other is called Libsyn Mahi. I just arrow to the one I want, press enter and voila, that's your actual French. Now, if you've already created the logins, all isn't lost there either. You can go back and uh, in the full 1Password app, Go through all the logins that you've saved, and when you find one, press the edit button. You'll see the username and password available there, and from there, you can give it the appropriate title, so you can edit and update after the fact. So it is a genius system. It really is. So that's the workaround for that one. But Mike is not done. Oh, no, he is not. Also, he says... When I try to add a new item through the Windows app, JAWS reads most of the form fields twice. JAWS reads most of the form fields, I'm sorry, as I am um, pressing tab. For example, when entering a new credit card, JAWS reads the card type field twice, and I am not sure which field I'm supposed to use. I then tried installing the 1Password X Chrome extension, but the control backslash keyboard shortcut does not seem to work. I also tried pressing down arrow in a login field and JAWS doesn't read anything. Okay, I just can't duplicate that. I'm afraid I after I got your email, I did go in and check. And um, when I tab through, I am just hearing the field name very clearly. Sometimes I might need to do a say line or an insert tab to get the form field, but not most of the time, and I'm not getting any repetition. But certainly the extension and the 1Password Windows app is, in my experience, the correct combination. So I wish you luck, but I would also encourage you to contact 1Password support because their support, in my experience, is pretty good. Hi, Jonathan. It's May Thompson here. Hello, May. There's something I would like to tell you about the RNIB. A week past Wednesday... They came to my door about three o'clock in the afternoon. I opened the door and they said, hello, we're from that NIB. Have you heard of us? I said, oh, yes, I've heard of you. I said, I get things from that NIB and I've known about that NIB since I've been a child. So he started to tell me that they were starting to employ train up site loss advisors 
did I know about that? I said, no. I said, I haven't heard about that. Oh, well, they just help people to to be independent and start to do things and, uh, you know, when they're losing their sight, blah, blah, blah. And then he said to me, would you be able to give some money? But just before he said this, someone else came to my other door. So I said, could you wait a minute? I says, because somebody's at my other door. So I went to the other door and here it was two other people from that and I, and they said, we're from that NIB. <laughs> and I said, well, there's somebody at my other door from that NIB. <laughs> it's like it's like that old song about close the door, they're coming through the window. <laughs> so he said, I'm sorry about that. So I went back to the first guy and I said, yeah, they were from that NIB. He said, uh, oh, they might have just got mixed up with the, the different the properties. Um, they maybe wouldn't know that someone else was at the other door. He proceeded to say, well, that must have been my other colleague's so could you spare £4 a month? And I said, no. I said, I'm not giving to that NIB at this present time. And it was a bit insistent, and I just said, no, no, I don't, I don't think so. Thanks very much. I just shut the door. And then I thought to myself afterwards, if Ray hadn't been here, how do I know if they were from that NIB? And how do I know if they, the guys coming to the other door you know, me having the first door open, how do I not know that they could come into my house and maybe steal something? But as it was, I did phone that in IB and it was genuine. Seemingly it's it's our local council that gives them permission to come and fundraise and try and get new people on board. And the woman said they were in your area, but she well understood how... I felt a bit vulnerable, so she's going to send me out a couple of tickets to put on my door saying no cold callers. Good to hear from you, mate, and you raise a very interesting point. You actually brought back a horrible flashback for me. Flashback. Yes, yes, it, it, it was a flashback. Flashback. Yeah, because... I haven't thought about this for years until I got your message and then I had this... Flashback. Uh, yeah, because... I remember we had the police come to our school. We used to have the police come to our school quite a bit, not because of anything that anybody did. <laughs> but it was just sort of like the the thing that was done there, and it probably still is, you know, your local community constabule or whatever coming along and talking about the police. And we got to talking about, I don't know, safety or, you know, how answering questions from the police. And I was about eight or nine and they were talking about asking a policeman and everything. And I popped up and I said, as a blind person, how do I know that I'm dealing with a legitimate policeman? Because if you just tell me you're a policeman, how do I, as a blind person, know that I've actually got a real one and not somebody who perhaps means me harm or whatever, you know, and I wasn't quite that articulate as a nine-year-old, not that I'm articulate as a 50-year-old either. And uh, the teacher really got stuck into me and said I was being rude and disrespectful. I was very upset about that because it's an absolutely legitimate question. These cold callers, they really can upset people who are a little bit 
confused. You know, they want to be nice. And we get this a lot in New Zealand with uh, internet companies and things of that nature as well, preying on less tech-savvy people, many of whom are elderly. And it's a shocker. It really is. So I do sympathize with what you're saying. I also sympathize with the RNIB because uh, I know that their predicament is quite similar to what we have in New Zealand, where a lot of blindness services are funded by charitable donation. Uh, So they've got to raise the money somehow. Thomas, hello to you. Thank you to you and our fellow listeners last week for the solid ad blocker recommendations. Very helpful suggestions with multiple fixes for my ads problem. After cruising along with iOS 13.4 public beta 2 this past week, I have identified a couple of intermittent annoying issues suddenly surfacing in public beta volume 3 downloaded over the past 36 hours. VoiceOver goes silent and freezes my phone for several seconds with every third gesture in certain apps, such as Messages. Well, resetting VoiceOver as well as soft resetting my iPhone 11 Pro Max sometimes fixes these errors, but I am in fear they will come back during an important workflow process. Wow, I haven't seen that, but uh, I did have one in the second beta where I was having a lot of difficulty answering calls, and I was never sure whether that was because of my MFI hearing aids or not. That one does seem to have cleared up, knocking on the wood. In addition, says Thomas, it almost feels like Siri is broken because one does not receive the audible dings and feedback when starting or stopping Siri or dictation. Yes, I've seen this Interestingly, when you're running the made-for-iPhone hearing aids, it still works as it normally does when voiceover is running. Of course, what you are guessing is the sighted experience now. Uh, The uh, non-voiceover interaction has been without those beeps for some time, but I imagine a lot of people will find that a bit disconcerting. I reported, says Thomas, these irksome accessibility bugs in the Feedback Assistant app. Can you suggest any additional platforms through which to report them to Apple during the public beta cycle. You could just give Tim a call, I guess. Now, I think you're doing the right thing. It's just a you know a lottery of whether they'll get fixed or not. Uh, Thomas continues, I also still cannot believe we voiceover users must still deal with the unpredictable loss of order and reading position when reading mail in the mail app slash all inboxes. Yes, it's really, really frustrating, Thomas, and has been there since 13 came out. Does it seem like we are going backward in terms of voiceover accessibility with these persistent and now growing intermittent bugs? I guess that will teach me to be progressive with beta releases prior to a week of much travel and the need for ultra-high productivity. I'm not normally a complainer, says Thomas, but rather a frequent optimist. So please forgive me here. Even with the iOS 13 accessibility drama over the past six months, Apple still has a monopoly for my business on the go. On the other hand, I am infinitely grateful 
for the rock-solid desktop experience that Windows 10 and JAWS 2020 constantly provide. Keep up your awesome work, Jonathan, and please send my best to Bonnie from Ohio. Thank you very much, Thomas. Well, I do have some good news. As far as I can tell, and I'm knocking on all the woods, iOS 13.4 beta number 3 does seem to have fixed the repeating notifications issue. I haven't had it since I upgraded to that beta, so that is very welcome indeed. Also, somewhere along the line, there has been a fix to the issue that really nearly had me send my iPhone 11 Pro Max back to to Tim, back to Tim. When I first got it, I was not able to use at all my Apple Magic keyboard with my MFI hearing aids. It was just impossible. The keyboard would just spew spurious random characters everywhere. The speech would get choppy. It was a mess. And luckily, I found an old Logitech keyboard, which may well have used an earlier version of Bluetooth that allowed me to keep going. But I tried the Apple Magic keyboard again, and I've actually been using it at work with my Apple docking station where I have everything cabled. So the MFI hearing aid problem wasn't an issue when I was using it at work. But I did undock recently and try it and found to my great delight that all those problems are gone. In fact, it's working better now than it was in iOS 12. So I'm very pleased about that because I don't like the feel of this Logitech keyboard as much as I like the feel of the Apple one. So I've actually bought a second Apple Magic keyboard now, keeping one at home and one at my office. So I'm pleased about that. So there are a couple of good things. Also, in iOS 13.4 Beta 3, there's some very interesting code lurking about that suggests that Apple is going to be introducing an over-the-air software recovery feature. This is very similar to what people will be used to in the Mac ecosystem. You will know if you've ever had to recover your Mac or perhaps sell your Mac, as I did back in 2016, that you might need to just reset the operating system and keep it absolutely clean. And you can do this at the moment if you want to completely reinstall the operating system because the operating system has become corrupted. The only thing you can do on an iPhone or an Apple Watch or an iPad is to connect it to a computer and get the operating system installed that way. So it looks like that's going to be a thing of the past as Apple increasingly tries to make their iDevices and Apple Watch devices independent of computers. So that's encouraging. I do share your frustration. To answer your specific question about whether things are going backwards, no, I actually don't think so. I mean, I've been using iOS for a long time now, like over a decade now, oh my word. And uh, I think that we've always had this problem, at least since about iOS maybe 8. I'll tell you another one that I've found, and maybe I'm, I, I've mentioned this to a couple of other people. Maybe I'm the only person that uses these, but I really like the context menus. I got into them with 3D Touch, and now I still use them on my 11 Pro Max. In fact, sometimes I will choose to have apps on my home screen specifically because they have really useful context menus. For example, the Uber app, if you do a long press on the Uber app, you can very quickly book an Uber for frequently visited destinations and various other things like the Twitterific's got a pretty cool context menu. And since iOS 13, you've been able to really get to those easily by doing a one finger triple tap. 
But that's been broken for the whole of the iOS 13.4 beta cycle. I've been waiting with every beta for them to fix it because in the voiceover gestures, when you go in and look at how they're configured, that one finger, triple tap, is still there as the context menu gesture. But for now, the only thing you can do is do a double tap and hold on the item to get into its context menu. Now, Anthony earlier said that he was listening, and Ian Lackey talked about all our Tom Dooley discussion over the last week. Anthony was actually at Mosin Towers last night, and uh, he sometimes doesn't listen to the Mosin at Large podcast or the Mosin Explosion. Oh. Yes, I know. Shocking, I know. So I don't think he knew that we've had all these lengthy discussions about Tom Dooley, but he did volunteer that he remembers the sequel song I'm talking about. So I do know a bit more about it now. He tells me it's called Tom Dooley's Revenge. He doesn't believe that the Kingston Trio sang it, so they didn't record the sequel, but that it is called Tom Dooley's Revenge. So that might give me something to work on to see if I can find this. Mosin at Large Podcast! Hey, Jonathan. Uh, Ibrahim Kong from Boston, the United States. Welcome. Vote early and, and often, um, man. I was wondering if you knew any um, accessible apps um, for Wi-Fi extenders or Wi-Fi routers that were powerful and had accessible apps. Yeah, I would not recommend the one that we're using at the moment, uh, Ibrahim, which is a Netgear or sort of a gaming router type thing. But we had a very unfortunate episode where Mushroom FM and the whole Mosin Towers internet ecosystem went boom. It actually exploded on New Year's Day. And here in New Zealand, there's basically nothing open on New Year's Day. So we had to go and get a router. The first thing we tried was a a D-Link, I think it was. And that was just completely inaccessible. And I took it back to the store and had a bit of a battle with them over that. <laughs> and um, finally got it swapped out. And we got this Netgear one, which is actually a very, very stable router. Things have been a lot more stable than the Asus R86U that we used to have. Now, that was actually quite an accessible user interface, the Asus router. Also, I would really recommend in every possible respect Ubiquity gear. They're robust. They're very high grade given that they are serving the consumer market. They have an iOS app. Last time I checked and I was assisting someone with getting set up with Ubiquity uh, maybe a year or two ago, maybe last year. Last time I checked, it was very accessible. It's just really, really good stuff. You can use mesh networking if you prefer Mesh networking is certainly a much better way to go than wireless extenders. Or if you want, you can do what we did at Mosin Towers and just put Cat6 cabling everywhere and <laughs> Ethernet ports uh, because we've got gigabit fiber and they're just rolling out 8 gigs down and 8 gigs up fiber in our area right now. So um, we would need some significant upgrades to the infrastructure to even make that worthwhile. Crazy what has happened to New Zealand in terms of internet infrastructure. So I definitely check out the Ubiquity gear. It's good stuff, man. I think it might have been Nick Zamarelli has said that the Eero stuff is good. And I haven't had any experience with Google Wi-Fi, for example. So I'm sure we could get a lot of people commenting on accessible options in the router and wireless mesh space. So that would be very helpful for a lot of people, I'm sure, who have similar questions. The Apple Airport app was great. 
very accessible, and it is a shame that that has um, bitten the dust. Bonnie Mosen. Hello. Welcome to you. Hello. You got a shingles update? I do. I'm getting better. Getting better all the time. I'm still really tired, so today I am taking the day off. Probably going to do some laundry, but um, did some yesterday, but it's um, still really tired. I I think my energy is coming back, but I just have to be kind of careful with it and preserve it and not use it. It's all coming back to me. Yeah. So this is a question that I've been saving up for you. uh So I have been sent email by a number of people this week. And I hope that people will forgive me if I don't mention everybody's name, but certainly Charlie Crawford sent me one. A few people have sent emails about this notice of proposed rulemaking in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I know that we've all had a lot of trouble in the States with getting on planes where people have brought their emotional support, whatever, you know, insert animal name here, basically, mm-hmm. including or insert animal species. Yes. Here, yeah. Yes. That's what I mean. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so it's, it's really animal. become a problem and Peep it's not just dogs. I mean, there are some pretty unruly dogs that have been oh, a lot of unruly dogs you know, given get, getting in there under the excuse of being an emotional support mm-hmm. animal or whatever. Now, my understanding is that uh, certainly in New Zealand, because I, had a hand in putting the last revision of the act together. I believe this is the case in most countries. To call yourself a guide dog team, you have to be working with a guide dog that has been accredited by a recognized agency under the legislation. Not all countries. Well, I I know that that's not the case in the States. No. But it's pretty common elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, Canada, I think they also don't have this. I mean, they, Canada Not went. I'm sure what Canada does. Canada went, went way over the top with their yes. uh, proposed standards a couple of years ago. And we covered that extensively yeah. on the blind side. Mm-hmm. And that was just, a, this was a huge, huge overreach. Get, yeah, by the government. But what I don't understand is what is actually wrong with having schools that are accredited under the International Guide Dog federation providing a certificate or some some medallion we have a medallion on our harnesses or in our choke chains for the dogs that makes it clear this has been certified on an annual basis to be a working guide dog behaving properly so that we don't have this free-for-all that is so common in the united states i don't actually see what the problem is with with that there's just a lot of controversy. You have 12, 14 schools in the U.S. They're all a bit different. Some give ownership. Some don't give ownership. They're all different. And there are owner-trained dogs. There are people who hire other trainers to train their dogs. The guide dogs, I'm talking about guide dogs specifically, not other service animals. And what they don't want is because most of the, I think there's only maybe one or two schools in the U.S. who are not IGDF accredited. So, and it's interesting because if Eclipse had not come from an IGDF accredited school, I would have had a lot of trouble getting her into the country because uh, there are airlines and countries that the dog has got to come from an IGGF accredited school. You have to pay a lot of money and do a lot of other things. But a lot of people do not want 
And I think they're afraid the government's going to come in and do this, sort of like with Canada. And you don't want the government getting involved in this. You just do that. All the schools are charities. You don't want the government putting its head in because then it's telling you how you can run your school and you have people that don't know what they're doing and, you know, all that stuff. So uh, there's so much controversy when this comes up on guide dog lists. But a lot of people just do not want this because they don't want to be showing an ID every time they go in somewhere. And my thing, the ADA has helped and hurt people. The ADA is very kind of vague on some of these terms, which is why we're having the problem now. And what's happened is a lot of these animals who are coattailing on the rights that basically, let's just face it, the blind people got these rights. It was not another disability. Mars Frank and and those that followed him were the ones that got the rights for guide dogs. So behavior is the bottom line here. I don't have a problem with another dog being on a plane. I don't have a problem with another dog being in a cafe if it behaves. I don't care if it's a pet. I don't care if it's a service dog. I don't care what it is. The problem is businesses are so afraid of being sued that they're not kicking people out when their dog misbehaves. And I don't care whether it comes from Seeing Eye or Tom Dooley's Dog Training Academy. They're not upholding the law and people have found, you know, people take advantage of it. My personal views is that even if I chose to be an owner trainer, the racing industry, for example, you have to be a licensed trainer to be able to race a horse precisely at a certain track. So, I mean, I can't just decide today I'm going to enter my horse at a race at Santa Anita and pop up and say, okay, he's running in the fifth. They're going to want my license. And if I don't have one, they're going to say, well, you know. And as long as you have the Wild West that is there at the moment, then inevitably, unless blind people and the guide dog organizations take control of this and seize the initiative, inevitably there will be government control one day because people will just get fed up. So I really don't understand what the issue is with the IGDF being the arbiter of certified, you know, the schools are credited with IGDF so that the IGDF, which is a pretty robust framework, independent Assessment mm-hmm. that often comes in from overseas. Yeah, you to, cannot have someone from your own country right, assess to, to assess the school. Yeah. So there's no room for any kind of Mm-mm. politics to enter. No, I've never set, heard of I'm sure there are politics involved with them, but I've never actually heard of it. So if the industry polices itself yeah. and the IGDF is recognized as a hallmark of quality uh, and you are able to confirm that you've got an IGDF accredited dog. Why would there be a reason then for the government to want to step in? Because it's sorted and it's, it shouldn't just be extended to blind people. They, they should pick equivalent organizations for hearing dogs and you know, various other people who have legitimate need for service animals mm-hmm. and make sure that all, all they really need to be interested in is to ensure that there is a robust industry standard. It doesn't have to be government regulated. The industry should police itself. But I know of blind people who in the past have brought any old mat into all sorts of places and called it a guide dog. Oh, yeah. It happens. You know? It happens a lot. And one thing a lot of people, and I know I'm going to get myself in big trouble here, but I don't care. Not all blind people who own or train their dogs. That's certainly not all of them. There are some who do it because they have been rejected from many different schools. Mm. So therefore, in my mind, they're not even qualified. If they're not, qual- if a school doesn't deem them qualified to handle a dog from their school, 
they're probably not qualified to train a dog. I mean, it's, you know, that's the bottom line. Some are. Some of, you know, trained dogs that will work circles around a, a program trained dog, but then there are others who don't. And I think that if they want the same rights, then like you said with IGDF, why can't they have an assessor who travels around different countries? If they're doing an assessment for a school in the U.S., then they can go and visit people who've owner trained their dog. I mean, oh. they don't have to have follow-up. I mean, seeing eye doesn't have follow-up. I mean, they have follow-up, but they don't have mandatory follow-up. Like some schools, you call them if you have an issue. Now, I don't mm. know who these people call, but, you know, that's that's their that's their issue. But if you have an IGDF person certified, a lot of it is these emotional support animals that people, they have fluffy and they put it in their purse and they carry it because they can't be out in public. They can't fly. I mean, whatever happened to the days when you just grabbed a little one of those airline brandies and downed it, you know, mm. take a couple Benadryls. You don't need. And, and another thing is these animals have not been socialized. You get a, a dog that's never flown, that's never been on an airplane, around 400 people and all that stuff. It, and it's – I used to fly quite a bit, and the flight attendants would tell me horror stories. And there's nothing they can do. And they said, we know there's nothing we can yeah. do. And I, I think rights come with responsibilities. Yeah. That's the bottom line. And mm-hmm. I'm all for the rights for animals that genuinely assist someone with a wide range of disabilities or, or impairments. But – Anyway, but if you have a dog that's running up and down, I don't care what where a dog came from, if it's running up and down the aisle on a flight or it's bitten a flight attendant or a passenger or it's just misbehaving, the airline in my mind has every reason to kick you off. Oh, absolutely. And I don't think anyone would deny that. I think uh, my my question is why why are they on the plane in the first place? Yeah. Um if they if they don't have accreditation from a recognized entity which provides services to disabled people. And people just want to take their pet for free. So, And, yeah. and another, per, another group of people that I think really should come under the microscope here is doctors and therapists, some who you've never even seen before, that will just write a note saying, yes, you have anxiety, so you need to take your puppy on the plane or you need to take your puppy in public. They've never seen the person. They've never had a session with them. They're just saying, well, yeah, I get nervous. You know, they're they're diagnosing. It's like these doctors that just hand out opioids like candy. It's yeah. the same I mean, situation. I, 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 I wouldn't resent for a second somebody who have le- has legitimate anxiety and is helped by an animal taking it on the plane. All I'm saying is that those animals should be trained. They have to be t- – there's to- a psychiatric support dog and an emotional support dog are not the same. And anyway. that's where a lot of people get the confusion. Emotional support animal has not had any training. Luckily, not it's not our problem. No. <laughs> I but- just – yeah. But and, and I carry because when I travel in the US I have so much paperwork on Eclipse to get her back into New Zealand. Right. That yeah. I have all this information with me, but a lot of people are resenting the fact, and I get this, that you just can't say, What if you had an emergency? What if you had to fly to New York tomorrow? That some of this rule preparation is saying that you have to give them forty eight hours notice. You yeah. And that's far worse, isn't it? Yeah. Wouldn't it be wouldn't it be far better to just simply have a certification program that is not government run but mm-hmm. but is industry driven? 
Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, on lighter notes. Oh, yeah. I did want to cover something else you were talking about earlier about assumptions. Oh, yes, because that's good because Peggy Kern's got another yeah. one to tell us about. Um, I have so many husbands. It's not funny. I mean, oh. I, I have so many husbands that I've never been married to even before I married you. I mean, I've been I've had so many husbands. They need to start, you know, ponying up. Well, obviously, Consolation, I had so many wives before I married I you. It's really embarrassing when you're, especially when you're traveling, the airlines seem to be the worst. If a man is talking to you or if a man is assisting you or if he's just sitting next to you, they assume it's your husband. And do you it's think that's so something that is unique to blind women, that people think that, that blind women need a husband to care for them? Maybe, but it's yeah. embarrassing. You'll be sitting there minding your own business with some dude sitting next to you that you might not even said hello to. And the the agent can say, oh, is this, are, is this your husband or is this your wife? Like, yeah. no. That, that really does um, annoy me when you're on an airline and mm-hmm. the flight attendant will say um, to to this person, this random stranger next to you, oh, if there's a, if there's an emergency, you'll you know you'll no doubt you, this person wife. will take care of you or <laughs> yeah, something. I'm like, yeah. No, I don't yeah. know them from Adam. You know, and it's it's so embarrassing, and and you just wonder if their wife is standing there, their girlfriend or yeah. boyfriend or whatever, yeah. and they're like, what? what? But yeah, it's it's so embarrassing, and it's it's not only embarrassing for me, but it's embarrassing for the other person. Yeah, well. You know? They yeah. probably go home and say, Ooh. Peggy Kern says, recently I was talking with a group of people and mentioned something about my daughter. And one of the people in the group asked if she was adopted. Do people think blind people can't get pregnant? They probably think that all blind people have blind children. Well, I remember years ago when I was interning in Arkansas. And someone was telling me that they had some people, donors or something, come tour the what's now called World Services for the Blind. And there was a married couple that were training there. And they noticed the or working there or whatever, but they noticed their wedding rings. And the comment was, you mean they get married? And we were talking last week about the We Walk Smart Cane. Here is a little review. From Christopher Wright in Australia, he says, Here are my thoughts about the We Walk cane. I received one as a gift. While I think it's an interesting idea, I'm not enthusiastic about the product in its current form and wouldn't have purchased one myself. The first thing I didn't like was how heavy the cane is. The top portion, where the grip is, also contains all the computer components. This unit probably weighs about a pound, although I may be slightly inaccurate. Nevertheless, it is significantly heavier than the rest of the cane that is supplied with the product. I find it is uncomfortable to hold due to the extra weight. The handle can be unscrewed and put onto another cane, but I don't have anything else to attach it to, so I'm going with what's included in the box. The features currently offered are interesting, but they don't do what I want. The cane is supposed to detect obstacles using a sensor on the front of the grip. It vibrates when objects are near you and does nothing when the area is clear. Unfortunately, I don't find this very useful, mainly because it constantly vibrated as I was walking around. Perhaps I may have been holding the cane the wrong way, but my impression wasn't very positive. The cane can also use Google Maps to give you GPS directions. Unfortunately, this doesn't really benefit me either, as the GPS is still restricted by what GPS can do. 
while it's nice, it will tell you how far to walk and when to turn. This really isn't significantly more helpful than using Google Maps on my phone would be. As I've said previously, I'm horrible when it comes to figuring out street and or building layouts. I was hoping the cane would be able to give me more specific information about the environment, such as the fact that a restaurant door is to my left in 50 feet. As I approached, I would receive updated information telling me how far away the destination was and in what direction. Sadly, this is not the case. I also found the speech feedback coming from the cane's built-in speaker was extremely quiet and hard to hear, especially in noisy environments. The cane also allows you to talk to the soup drinker. I forget exactly what the command is, but you perform a gesture on the touchpad, speak your command, and the soup drinker will respond from the paired smartphone. This is interesting, but not really worth it, in my opinion. Having said all this, my intent is not to bash the product. The idea is interesting and has the potential to do many great things. But the current feature set doesn't really benefit me. I would rather use a regular folding cane because the Wii Walk in its current form doesn't offer anything that justifies its high price point as far as I'm concerned. The vibration feedback is interesting, but I haven't figured out how to make it work properly. It's more annoying than helpful. Of course, you may disagree with me, but I'd rather have a truly useful product than a proof of concept. If future models included a camera and or provided better orientation features, I might consider it. But for now, my trusty folding cane combined with Ira and or a sighted guide will have to do. If you end up picking up one of these, I'd be curious to know what you think. I know the cane is still receiving software updates, but the features I want most likely require another hardware revision. I'll send my feedback to the developers as well so that they have more ideas to work with. Thank you very much for that comprehensive review, Christopher. And I understand that the developers of the WeWalk Smart Cane may have heard that we're discussing it. And if that's the case, I'd be very, very happy to have a chat with those who are developing the We Walk Smart Cane here on the show and um, even get a review unit. But certainly to have a chat from the from the people directly, I'd be very, very happy to do that. Hey, Jonathan, it's Mike Fair. Oh, and Mike. Uh, yeah, this, this whole bullying thing uh, and, and judgmentalism in the blind community, I've uh, certainly experienced my share uh, over the years, I don't know if there's a way to to really get to a place where we can avoid some of that going both ways. There's, there's, yeah, your tall puppy syndrome. What a great term! I've never heard it before. Uh, it must be a New Zealand specific thing because uh, I, I think I would have otherwise by now. You know, so I've seen that towards people who are successful. There's absolute envy there. There's also, of course, the other way. There's I've managed to do this. Why can't everyone else who happens to be blind do the same thing? And it, it doesn't work like that. You know, it really doesn't. 
I am geographically challenged, have hearing loss and sleep apnea. There are all kinds of reasons why I can't do a uh, dining in the dark job or something like that. Uh, you know, like, like another friend of mine <laughs> managed. Uh, he has excellent mobility skills. And yeah, there's just tons of different approaches to and, and conditions that go along with blindness and uh, that, that add twists to life <laughs> in various ways. I've just, I was feeling great earlier this morning. I uh, didn't get a great sleep, but I did finish the podcast section of the guide, a, all but the list of podcasts. I'm just putting that together. Yours will definitely be in there. It's going to be about twelve or 13,000 words long when it's all said and done. And uh, Castro is discussed in that. What a great app. Oh, uh, my uh, Hopefully people will uh, check that out. Yeah. Uh, well worth it, in my opinion. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, other choices of apps as, as well. So that section, thankfully, is done. I've been s- finally starting to really finish some of these sections off. The guide is well over 220,000 words at this point and climbing. And it uh, looks like uh, April is the end of April, April 29th, in, in fact, is going to be the date I'm aiming at. And we will see if I hit that now that I've made it public. Thank you, Mike. And it sounds like a very busy project that you have here with that guy. I mean, 200,000 words. It's a pretty significant offering. And are you giving that away? Did you tell me that you're going to be giving that guide away or are you going to be selling it in some form or another? Because that's a lot of work to have done. And uh, I look forward to hearing more about that and its publication. Here's Tone Matheson in Norway. She says, hello, Jonathan. Yes, assessment is a great idea in my mind. We are starting to get fake service dogs here in Norway too, and it's a hassle. For the general public often don't know the rules and see the differences. In my mind, a right comes with so-called downsides, like you need to control your dog in public. And one of my things I talk a lot about when in meetings with new guide dog handlers is to make sure your guide dog is well cared for and groomed and looks great. It is not at all possible to have a dog that doesn't get wet or so on, but making them be well-groomed and well-behaved sure helps us. Thank you, Tone. It does. Yes, we do have a responsibility, and I know that some taxi drivers have been pretty upset about smelly guide dogs that have come in, and sometimes you can't help it. If you've been out in a downpour, you can't help it, can you? But We do have a responsibility to groom our dogs, make sure they're cared for, that they don't smell too bad. And, you know, they are dogs, so all that kind of stuff. But that they're not shedding too much hair because they haven't been groomed. And so those are responsibilities that come with the rights. And I will defend those rights passionately and have done for uh, much of my life. But we do have those responsibilities as well. George McLaughlin is in on bullying and he says, thanks as always for the great show. On the subject of bullying, I completely agree that we have to celebrate the success of every blind or visually impaired person in everything that they are attempting to do autonomously. Certainly, in terms of employment and so on, in the UK, I know many in our community find it difficult to find jobs or attain slightly lower educational qualifications. I know this can be used by people in the sighted community as another reason to patronize people in the blind community. However, if those that do find it difficult are making a go of it, 
That's all they can do, and we have to look at the wider system and attitudes to avoid bullying taking place. Thank you, George. Peggy Kern was talking earlier about the assumptions that are made about blind parents, and that's something dear to my heart. And I have a Google News feed that gives me stories about blindness. I don't always get to look at it all because there are lots of stories that come in and I have a busy life. But I did take a look at some of the stories yesterday and I see there was an episode in the very popular BBC series called The Midwife that dealt with a young blind mother whose sister was dead against the idea that she would be capable of raising the child on her own at home when her husband was away. I will try and check that episode out. But if you're from the UK and you saw that Call the Midwife episode, I'd be really keen to get your impressions of whether you felt it accurately dealt with the issues. Uh, And I do know that the actress who played the blind woman is low vision herself. Here is Doug Oliver. And he says, I'm commenting on the topic of bullying. I found out during therapy that I was diagnosed with some cognitive learning disabilities and people make fun of me for it and told me I shouldn't work, that I'm not worth employing. But I've learned to ignore the comments from the negative people and do what I want to do instead of allowing the negativity people overtake me. Aaron Linson is in touch. And he says, hello, Jonathan, I hope your day is going well. Well, it is, especially now that I get to chat to you. So thank you, Aaron. He says, I've got something that might puzzle your mind, dude. Whenever I come upon a heading using Braille, that heading is highlighted. I went through and turned off highlighting underneath Braille settings in JAWS What other setting do I need to look at to get this fixed? I figured I'd ask you before bugging Vespero's tech support. I suspect that the heading could be where when you apply heading style, all sorts of things happened. It could have been bolded, potentially italicized and underlined. So all sorts of things can happen. So what I would tend to do, if you really don't want to see any of that formatic stuff and you just want the text on your brow display, go into the JAWS settings center and bring up the default configuration and then go into the Braille settings and then down into structured mode. So there's a tree view structure there. Go into structured mode and you will see there that you've got all sorts of Braille indications from highlighting to italicizing and also script-defined settings, I would just uncheck them all if you really aren't interested in seeing any of that information represented. I mean, some people do want to see it or they only want to see it in certain circumstances. So when I'm reading for presenting publicly, and I do quite a bit of that in my job, as you can appreciate, I don't want to see any of that. I just want the text as unambiguously as possible. But sometimes when I'm proofing, then it is appropriate to see that stuff, especially so I don't do something daft. That's a good English word, isn't it? Something daft like leaving bold on, you know, forgetting to turn it off. Although text analyzer is another good way to catch those things. It is amazing 
what text analyzer will do in terms of catching when you've turned italics on but not off again and things like that. There are just so many good tools in JAWS that ensure that your documents look acceptable and that you haven't done something crazy. But so, yes, you can go in and just uncheck all those boxes in structured mode. There's a lot buried away in structured mode, right down to the way that each control is represented and labeled on the Braille display. So knock yourself out, as they say in New York. Knock yourself out, Aaron. Yeah. Michael Fesbitt back in touch, and he says that he will be giving away his guide. People can share it with others who will benefit. And the guide will be on his blog. Mosin at Large Podcast. I've been meaning to mention this one, gosh, since I got back from my summer break, because it is exciting. You've just kept me so busy that I haven't gotten around to it until now, but I do want to get it in here. And that is that the Bluetooth SIG has announced changes to the Bluetooth standard, including an official protocol for hearing aid support. So I'm hoping that this might help with the whole made for iPhone versus everything else thing. I believe Apple is on board with this. And at the heart of most of these interesting changes is low complexity communication codec known as L3C for short. So when you start seeing reference to L3C, you should be excited. It means higher quality audio at lower bit rates And what that also means, of course, is that um, less battery usage will happen as a result of that. So it's not just about hearing aids. It's about all sorts of Bluetooth devices being able to send higher quality audio to you at lower bit rates. And they've done some blind or double blind tests. And people are quite happy with the sound of this new L3C codec. People will be able to pair with the same audio source in venues. So what that means, for example, is that you can go to a cinema and you can pair your Bluetooth hearing aids or even headphones that support this and hear the audio very clearly. It'll be a much more effective alternative to hearing loops. TVs will be able to support the hearing aids as well, making it less necessary to buy expensive adapters. And so that means that if you have a couple of hearing impaired people who want to hear the TV at different volumes, then there's no problem with this new Bluetooth standard connecting multiple devices to it. All of this, the new codec for music, the new hearing aid stuff, is going to take a while to filter through to actual products, but it will certainly be worth it when it gets there. So keep an eye out for that L3C stuff and all the new Bluetooth that is coming that is going to make audio via Bluetooth so much more versatile. If you'd like to make a contribution to next week's podcast, drop me an email with an audio attachment or just write something down. Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. Or you can call the listener line, 864-606-6736, 864-60-MOSIN. Mosin.